Welcome to the Peace at Home podcast. It's the difficult second episode. I'm your host, Sedan. I'm Ben. I'm Jamie. That's it. We did it. We managed to do it without talking over each other. Yes. <laughs> we fi- we've already improved on the first episode just by doing that. I'm really happy with that. Um, <laughs> that's it. Podcast is over. We've done the thing I wanted to do with it. We're wrapping it up. Yeah, we're just going to clip, clip that bit and put it on every episode we do from now on. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I'm gonna keep it spare just in case. Uh, yeah, yeah, work smarter, not harder. That's right. Yeah, we'll see how I do with the edit because it's gonna be a quick turnaround with my birthday in between the release date. So let's see oh, how wow. that plays out. Yeah, I'm turning 28. I'm not happy, but at least I'm not turning 100 like Turkey next year. So who's to say? Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Centenary. I'm excited for the inevitable election night stream I'm gonna do, where I will. Which is what this is really a lead up to, just so everyone understands all the references I make. <laughs> just got to train your audience. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, basically the payoff is I'm going to do one stream and that's it. But yeah, so we forgot at the uh, at the end of, or I forgot, I shouldn't say we, I'm in charge of writing the stuff. I forgot one actually quite important event before we got to the armistice. Yeah, I mean that that we forgot implies that like I mean I I don't want to speak on Ben's behalf, but I know fuck all about like Turkish <laughs> independence, so bit of a reach to suggest I forgot it. Yeah, I forgot it because I'm an asshole. I guess I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I spent so much time making sure I had the chronology right, and then forgot like the event that toppled an entire British government. Oh, which, which yeah, I feel like I should have remembered. Yeah. Yeah, that's like you know what I mean. I, I can relate because that's like me driving all the way to Tesco and having to buy new bags every time I get there. <laughs> like three, three of the cupboards in the kitchen are now just chock full of bags for life. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm not even. Amazing. Yeah, the ter- right. So the Turkish shop near me doesn't uh, doesn't charge for bags. So even though I carry everything in a rucksack, they insist on giving me a bag. So now I've got like the cupboard under the sink just full of bags from the Turkish shop. Is this them doing, like, anti-Lib Dem action? They just yeah. don't recognise the, the plastic bag charge. Yeah, Lib Dem's yeah. very disliked among the Turkish community in Nottingham. <laughs> just just on my, for me alone, really, that's pretty much true. Lib Dem's not welcome here. No. In fact, well, in fact, because the predecessor party to the Lib Dems were the ones doing a lot of the Brit imperialism in this case, so... Ah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's difficult to remember a time when liberals were relevant to national politics, as in a partisan sense, because they have like 15 political parties now, or whatever, <laughs> yeah. and they still fucking complain. Anyway, that's a different podcast. So, <laughs> the event I forgot to mention was something called, in English it's called the Chanak Crisis, which, um, so Chanak is based on the Turkish words Chanakkale, which is what Turkish people call Gallipoli. Uh, so it's about the straits. And fucking straits. Right. Yeah, the Straits, once again. There is a building near me called, like, the Straits Apartments. <laughs> and people genuinely got mad at it. And it smelt Straits like, you know, like the Bosphorus or whatever. Not straight people. But people were genuinely lost their mind about it and were like, we should rename this. Amazing. Yeah, I guess. I, I guess I can see why. Because if you're saying it casually, the Straits Apartment doesn't sound great. I'm, I'm personally quite happy with putting them all in one place so they don't bother anyone else that's just that's my attitude yeah i'm i'm fine i'm fine with straight people as long as they keep it to themselves exactly yeah <laughs> keep, keep behind, behind closed doors yeah, not in public 
with another favor of that. Um, but yeah, so this is, uh, so there are like alternative names which can give you an idea as to how well this went for Britain. The Chanak Affair, because you know, when Brits call it an affair, you know it's not Ooh. gone very well. Or the Chanak Incident. Oh, yes. Yeah. But did, it, did it ever become an emergency? No, it never became an emergency because it didn't escalate to the to that level. But basically, what's happening is so we, we recall the uh, the propaganda picture of the building that was on fire, not really representing accurately the massive fire that actually happened. Yeah. Mm. So this is like right after that, and the Turkish soldiers take Izmir and they're like, "Well, where next?" And they look at Istanbul and they're like, "Well." I mean, isn't that obvious? Isn't that the obvious place to go? And so they start marching on Istanbul, which obviously causes like a massive panic because there are a ton of Brit troops there. There are British troops, French troops, like some Italian troops and Greek troops over there. And so everyone is panicking because they're like, is Turkey basically going to, well, the nationalists, are they basically going to actually attack British troops? Hmm. Even though they'd kind of already done that, but like, in an indirect, you know, the, the British advisors yeah. on the ground, you know, uh, like, that yeah. doesn't count, you know, advisors and attaches. Who who cares about that shit, you know? And so, actually, here's here's the moment where you should cancel Mustafa Kemal because he gave an interview in the Daily Mail. Oh, <laughs> oh no! Yeah. yeah, he gave an interview in the Daily Mail explaining what the Turkish nationalist demands were. As long as their boy Ismet Enenu didn't. No, he, as far as I know, he's never given an interview to... No, he's given an interview to British press, to the BBC, because there's a YouTube video of him in, like, 1963 or whatever, after an assassination attempt, where he's doing the trick that we'll talk about later to the BBC interviewer. Oh, yes. Um, and he has a translator who deliberately mistranslates. So I, I, I watched the interview, and I'm like, he's translated to that very generously and diplomatically <laughs> compared to what he actually said. Um, but yeah, he said, um, our demands remain the same after our recent victory as they were before. We ask for Asia Minor, Thrace up to the River Maritza, which is the modern border between like Turkey, Greece, and Bulgaria, and Constantinople. It wasn't renamed Istanbul officially. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a later thing. We must have our capital, and I should, in that case, be obliged to march on Constantinople with my army, which will be an affair of only a few days. I much prefer to obtain possession by negotiation, though naturally I cannot wait indefinitely. Which is basically, we're going to kick the Brits out by force. Unless yeah, you... nice. yeah. Which is, you know, fair enough. Kick the Brits out by force. We're generally in favour of that. Yeah. Should see more of it, in my opinion. Yeah. It's like of that, that memory TV still that goes about, which is like, this Anglo-Saxon breed understands nothing but force. <laughs> <laughs> I love memory TV so much. It's so good. <laughs> but yeah, this is, so for people who know a lot about World War One, this is an area of Turkey that just seems to routinely cause problems for Brits with their dominions. So obviously the first thing is the Battle of Gallipoli, which obviously is foundational to like the australian and new zealand identity yeah and they basically end up telling britain to fuck off on the basis of the identity form this time it's canada's turn to grow a fucking spine amazing yeah you got you you gotta keep those three oil companies stacked on top of each other in that trench coat somehow i guess (laughs) the turkish troops start marching towards um istanbul because they're like well it's our city you know And Britain are like, Britain are panicking because they're like, uh, okay, we need like two hundred and fifty thousand troops, but we also can't send any British troops. 
because everyone in the country hates this specific war. If you want an idea of how Tony Blair would have done Iraq, you know, in like 1920, this is more or less how it would have gone down, is he would have gone to all of Britain's dominions and gone, can you give us the troops, please, so I don't send any actual Brits. Oh my god. Yeah, which, you know, it turns out that Mackenzie King, who Hearts of Iron fans will probably remember from that game, Mm. uh, he basically tells the Brits that, like, Canada's parliament are going to decide whether we send troops to Turkey or not. And that was like a massive affront at the time. It was like the biggest scandal that had ever happened. Oh, shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, how dare they? Yeah, how dare they? We don't set up multiple other Westminster-style parliaments so they can decide things for themselves. That's not how it works. Yeah, like, how dare they? And so basically the Brit reaction to the Turkish troops like marching on Istanbul is basically... You can't do that. That's against the law. (laughs) They're acting like they violated the treaty, but the nationalists didn't sign. Amazing. (laughs) And the thing is, there there were basically three cabinet members in Britain who were, um, because it was a coalition government at the time, it was still the wartime coalition between the Tories and the Liberals, all factions of the Tories and the Liberals. And they, there were basically three members of the cabinet who who wanted a war, and every single other minister were like, no, we're pro-Turkey in this case. Oh, boy. And and all of the pro- but Incidentally, funnily, all of the pro-Turkey members of the cabinet, conservatives, not ah. a single fucking liberal. Hmm. Once again, proving my thesis that it's, it's the libs that are the most jingoistic fuckers going. Oh, absolutely. And that whole, that whole you can't do that, that's illegal response is just peak <laughs> British liberal. Yeah. Like, oh, yes. I also will note that on Wikipedia, I just looked it up, the commanders and leaders for this particular incident on the British side, it's David Lloyd George, who was the Prime Minister, so fair enough. And then, you can see why Britain bungled this, because the second British leader is Winston Churchill. Oh, no. <laughs> Returning for round two in fucking Gallipoli. He's returned for round two in Gallipoli, a place he famously already fucked up. Amazing. Like I, love, his... I, love, I love his whole political career trajectory, just literally failing upwards the whole yeah. fucking time. Not, yeah. not even failing, he's failing in the same place against the weaker <laughs> opponent this time. Yeah, well, you know, you, you've got to you've got to have that second referendum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a liberal at the time. He wasn't in the Tories. Yeah, didn't get the result. Didn't get the result he wanted the first time. So, yeah, so didn't get it the second time because they uh, the the Brits fully like blink. So this is basically a who blinks first match, right? And Lloyd George basically completely fucks it. Like he he completely shits the bed because he gets completely fake intelligence. MI six are like, oh, uh, you know, um. It might be possible that the Turkish nationalists will form a military alliance with the Soviet Union, which obviously prompted like a huge panic because then the Soviet Navy gets to intervene. Yeah. Oh, yes, the Soviet Navy. A very impressive fleet. (laughs) Yeah, and then, so Winston Churchill, kind of uh, proving that he was the proto-Boris Johnson of the time, he made a manifesto warning that Turkey would do a massive offensive into Europe. (laughs) <laughs> if it got what it wanted, basically, all of these millions of Turks are coming here. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Breaking point. But here's the thing. It was, here's the thing. Everyone looked at it and realized it was so fucking ridiculous that it, like, actually legitimately embarrassed the British government into resigning. <laughs> like, it was such yeah. a fucking debacle that the British government genuinely fucking resigned because they just... They were just like, fuck it, we fucked this so bad, we're going to have to give the Turks what they want and resign, just to avoid yeah. fighting. 
they fucking Zenobia have lettered themselves. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays, British governments have evolved past the need to resign when they embarrass themselves. <laughs> yeah, now we get like daily embarrassments, and it's you know it's fine. Yeah, it's normal. This is a normal country, a normal island. Some might say. Hmm. <laughs> I kind of like how like I think Corbyn was like the one that actually did that first. The whole uh, no, I'm just not going to resign. Thanks, and everybody else <laughs> got on like oh. You mean we don't have to? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that was the thing. Yeah, he was the first one who just simply said, no, you can't make me resign. And then everyone else was like, wait a minute. Are you saying we don't have to resign? Like, for real? Yeah, it's like that uh, that fucking guy on Twitter the other day said he'd never called in never called in work like for a day off because he'd never called in gay or something like that. And I was like, I, I didn't know we could do that. Yeah, shit. Like, didn't... Didn't Denmark do that? I'm sure a bunch of people in Denmark did that when he got added to the DSM. They're like, oh, so it turns out I'm actually ill, so I can't come in. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Nice. <laughs> but yeah, like, the, obviously the thing in Canada is kind of interesting because this is the first time they, like, actually asserted themselves. And apparently the thing that really wound the Canadians up was basically that Winston Churchill didn't ask nicely. He just said, you're sending troops to Turkey. And they were like, yeah. uh, no. We would not like to do that, please. <laughs> you see, as, as Churchill being an old school British imperialist with the whole, you know, treat him yeah. keep him keen thing, it's just not working anymore. Yeah, just, Great, yeah. Greatest, greatest statesman the island's ever produced. <laughs> yeah. It, it's such a great statesman that he produced the one bit of racism that didn't work and embarrassed the government <laughs> into resigning. Incredible. In 1922, he produced a bit of racism so outrageous that he had to resign. The, the entire government had to resign. You could get away with it today, though, I bet. Oh, yeah, today oh, it would yeah. have been fine, yeah. You heard, you heard it here first, though. Winston Churchill, bad at racism. Yeah. <laughs> Unable to do racism very well, as it turned out. He refined it by the time he became a Tory. That's probably where he learned how to do the finer bits of it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going in James Ball territory there and just going, you know, Churchill may have been a racist, but he was very bad at it. Yeah. So, I mean, really, who can say whether he's good or bad? Yeah. He may have been a racist, but he did also lose every single battle he personally commanded. So who's to say whether he's good or bad? <laughs> Anti-imperialist Churchill, you love to see it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> basically. The long con. Yeah. His, his long con was basically destroying the British state's capacity to wage war in the Middle East. Which actually would have been good, given what happened in the 21st century, if he'd actually managed to make it stick, the useless fuck. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, maybe. so the government has to resign because the Tories are like, this is such a fucking debacle, we have to immediately withdraw support from the government and come out as anti-war. And would you believe being anti-war meant the Tories won an election in 1922? Oh yes, amazing. And the Liberals ate shit so badly that the Labour Party overtook them into second place, where they will remain for the rest of time. <laughs> so a mixed bag, then. Yeah, yeah. you know, Labour were anti-war in this case. So, you know, if you were wondering what the Labour Party position was. But you see, they didn't, they didn't win the election outright by being anti-war, so really that, yeah. that proves yeah. that taking an anti-war stance doesn't yeah. work. Pro-war parties won 9.9% of the vote at that election because the Liberal Party was split in two. Oof. What, Lab what Labour should have done is campaigned on a third Gallipoli. Yeah. Yes. People's Gallipoli. <laughs> <laughs> Although, in fairness, the Soviet Union did kind of, uh, did kind of go for that, <laughs> to be fair. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's a whole other thing, because the Soviet Union were like, we would like to own the Straits, please. 
Does a straight oh. seem to be a big problem? Hard agree. That's only if they go down that bit of the focus tree, though. So, I mean, if they leave that bit alone, then it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, as Turkey, you have to remilitarize the straits in Hearts of Iron. <laughs> this is true. You don't have a choice. That's like the one thing that definitely has to happen under all circumstances. This this is what political reality actually is. It's what, whatever Hearts of Iron forces you to do, that's obviously something you just have to face up to in real life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. You, you're just confronted by a big, like, uh, like uh, quick time action that says <laughs> remilitarize the straits. <laughs> Press X to remilitarize the straits. Great. One of those like uh, really shonky quick time events where it just waits for you if you don't press. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just goes in a loop. Yeah. But yeah, so that's how basically the the, fir- the first like hour and twenty minutes of this podcast are basically how a disastrous foreign war destroyed the British government, but also there were some very cool characters who owned the Brits over and over again. So there you go, including Winston Churchill. Including Winston Churchill, who was not cool, but did own the Brits. So, yeah. there you go. That is incredibly embarrassing. I would feel very embarrassed. And I've just, like, looked up basically every single country in the world, when the Brits asked them to, like, support them in the Chanak crisis, went, no, are you insane? Why are we doing this? We've just had a big war. Coalition of the unwilling. Yeah, like, this is... <laughs> yeah, remember, this is, like, four years after World War One. This war has not ended. Like. It has essentially continued for four extra years on top of World War One, and everyone is obviously fed up with it. Yeah, yeah. At last, well, they should just they should just be more patriotic. Yeah. So obviously they do the Modania armistice. Did they? Uh, which... Did the British? Did the British rename Turkish delight? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> It'd be interesting to find out. I think. <laughs> I think that America's the... more that what... sort of thing. Yeah. What was the first war? That like just included that particular brand of like collective psychosis. Well, do you know what I mean? did they not do it in the First World War by renaming German shepherds to Alsatians? Possibly, oh, I guess, yeah. Because yeah. I know America did Liberty Cabbage. Like that is a real yeah. thing. Like <laughs> I honestly legit thought that was just the Simpsons bit, and I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty funny. And I looked up, and I'm like, oh, no, they did do that. It's always been like this. Okay, oh, amazing. And also, I was watching um, the oversimplified about prohibition. And it turns out anti-German sentiment may have helped cause prohibition. Mm, not to mention uh, rebranding a lot of German Americans to Irish Americans, mm. which was very funny. That is actually yeah. kind of funny, given how the Irish were treated in America. <laughs> yeah. I'm just pic- picturing some like guy called Norman in 1067 having to like write write out a deed poll because he's, like, <laughs> his neighbors just keep griefing him in the, in the village it. square. They come round to do the Doomsday Book, and he's like, uh, my name's actually... Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, so they, they do this, um, they do that armistice we mentioned in the last episode, Modania, and I, I did mention, I'll mention it again, because it's so normal. My dad grew up in Modania, because my granddad was a soldier, so he got based out of a lot of places, so family moves with him, and every, basically, quite often at school, they would go to the house where the armistice was signed. And be like, look, this is where the armistice was signed. It's a huge, like, nationalist pilgrimage spot. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. The vibe is not good. <laughs> I have to say, it's not ideal. So then, basically, the next step after the armistice is this conference. So they do the Conference of Lausanne, because they have to do all these things in Switzerland now. Oh, because, God. you know, yeah, the conference was well attended. You know, there were, there were some leading lights attending, including Mussolini. Oh. Yeah. Who oh, gave- yeah. 
Yeah, who? Yeah, Mussolini's happened. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, already. Yeah, it's 1922. Mussolini is it has entered the chat, unfortunately, <laughs> and he's important enough to be talking at the conference. In fact, he gave a very long speech, basically talking about how unbothered he was by specifically Anatolia. <laughs> he was like, I don't want to send Italians to occupy this place full of very angry people who have guns. Oh, okay. I just want the islands. You know, because... Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, because Rhodes was Italian and some of the Greek islands were Italian after um, World War One. A fact that... A fact that if you forget in uh, Hearts of Iron 4, you will immediately get invaded by the Italians. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, I, I would... I, I hoped that it was still socialist Mussolini, and he was like, "We're not doing wars." But no, no, he'd already made the pivot, hadn't he? Yeah, he'd already done the march on Rome, and the Pope—he was doing his deal with the Pope, where he got the Pope to acknowledge Italy existed. Damn. Yeah, it took the Pope a long time to recognize Italy existed. <laughs> it's one of those things where I'm like, the Pope's just walking around, like, "Nope, you can't bother me. You don't exist." Yeah, just lo- looking at a map and thinking the Vatican is just a little island in the Mediterranean. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, just gazing off his balcony over the walls of the Vatican and going, oh, pretend I do not see it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, but obviously the main negotiating teams that matter here are the Brit negotiating team and the Turkish nationalist negotiating team. The other ones are kind of like, you know, like the Greek position is more or less settled. They don't get any land in Anatolia because they can't hold it, right? And yeah. the French position is kind of essentially settled by the Treaty of Ankara, because they basically said, we're going to figure out the specific line later, but the line was more or less settled. It's the, mod- it's the original Turkey-Syria border with the, uh, with the special status for Hatay, which is a region of now Turkey, was Syria, mm. didn't cause any problems. But what was going on with, like, Iraq? Was Iraq not an Ottoman territory as well at that time, Mark? It, it was. And so this is actually one of the things that's negotiated at Lausanne, because there's a whole bit of Lausanne, which is just the Mosul issue. Because Turkey's general position is, well, Mosul and Kirkuk are, like, effectively majority Turkish, as we consider Turkish. So therefore it should be ours. <laughs> and there's this sort of, sort of small stab-in-the-back myth that kind of exists where they're like, oh, isn't it convenient how Turkish territory ends where the oil begins? Uh, there's like, uh-huh. there's that kind of vibe about some of this. To be fair, I did get them out of being invaded by George Bush, so I mean, like, who can say that it was good or bad? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's Turkey you're in NATO, so like, it's been a bold <laughs> move by, um, by George Bush to invade. I mean, I wouldn't put it past them. No. <laughs> it's one of these things where Turkey's negotiating position was actually deceptively weak, because they, they've won all these military victories, right? But like... This is a country that since 19, so since 1870, I would say, has had about three years where it either wasn't at war or didn't have an internal rebellion. Oof. So you've only had like three years of like normal country existing. <laughs> We're given value of normal. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, like degrees of normal, but like for the Ottoman Empire, you know, it was, <laughs> it was not a good time. And for Anatolia in particular, not a great time. So it was a lot of this sort of, Turkey actually had like an incredibly weak negotiating position, but we should compare the negotiating teams, I think, a little bit, because mm-hmm. there's only really one important Brit at the negotiating negotiating at this conference. Because the Brits were so like intimidated by the debacle they'd caused, they actually sent the <laughs> actual foreign secretary to do the negotiations. So they sent this man called L- Lord Curzon, 
Uh-huh. Who, yeah, he's he has exa- for a Tory foreign secretary, he has the exact background. So he's a fancy aristocratic lad, you know, mm-hmm. lives in luxury. Mm-hmm. He went on a tour in air quotes of Asia, which I suspect involved nonsing. <laughs> of course, I mean the, the 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 information was very specific about him going to Thailand. So I'm not I'm not saying <laughs> anything, but but I mean like you know Tory, Tory Lord going to Thailand. Generally yeah. only means one thing. Yeah. Also, Lord Lord Curzon sounds like he's from fucking Star Trek or something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we mentioned him in my Star Trek appearance on the Praxis cast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just looked. He didn't go to Thailand. <laughs> I just had to double check whether he did. He did go on a tour of Asia, though. But he was also the Viceroy of India. Oh, that's always a good position. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so, you know. Sounds like a real up-and-comer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically, he's exactly the kind of person who we have to put up with now because we don't have any imperial possessions. Yes, they're all doing it at home now. Yeah, sucks. The British are learning what it's like to be governed by the British, and it turns out it's <laughs> fucking shit. Yeah, he we was, he was in many ways it. the the Rory Stewart of his day. Yeah, oh, Jesus, yeah, demanding a third Gallipoli as he walks into the conference. <laughs> People's Gallipoli. Let's go. That's a, that's a fucking shirt waiting to be made. People's Gallipoli <laughs> upset every Turkish nationalist. Well, I've been doing a good oh, job of that boy. this week because I argued that Crimea wasn't Turkish. Oh, oh no. Yeah, <laughs> I've had a I've had a productive week. Cr- Crimea is actually Genoan. Yeah, it's an Italian possession. Actually, no, it's English because there was an English <laughs> refugee colony there after 1066. Oh my god, they get everywhere. Yeah, called yeah. New England. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. Oh, a second New England. Yeah, the original New England, and it was in yeah. Crimea. No wonder it's such a cursed concept. <laughs> the Americans should have called their, like, fucking New England Squared or something. Yeah. <laughs> New England to Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> New Crimea. Yeah. So Turkey is led by its Minister of Foreign Affairs, who's uh, our favourite, Isma Inonu. Yes. But he's future, he's the future president of Turkey. He's not the president of Turkey at this point. He was the uh, he was the head of the military until he did a tactical retreat over a river and caused the parliament to panic, which meant he got sacked. <sighs> so right, yeah. yeah, he's the guy who got sacked last time for actually doing what seems to be a reasonable thing. Is the the opposite of Winston Churchill in many ways. Yeah, yeah, he's the perfect... In fact, him and Winston Churchill met many times. I guess that is something that will come up. Oh, I just want I just want a historical show to have them as like each other's nemesis, like fucking Holmes and Moriarty. Yeah. <laughs> but the main thing about him in the conference is that he was incredibly stubborn. So the justification for sending him specifically, even though, you know, you'd think like foreign secretary, probably a bit, you know, foreign, sorry, minister for foreign affairs, you know, you'd probably send some, you know, bureaucrat to do the sort of dirty work of it. But the basis for sending him was he's actually fought on the front lines, so he knows what was sacrificed. Mm. And he basically does this very this very stubborn negotiating tactic where he just states his demands, and then as soon as the Brits start talking, so Ismet Inunu was hard of hearing, so he had a hearing aid. He just yeah, switches uh-huh. his hearing aid off and lets the Brits talk. <laughs> <laughs> and then once the Brits are done, he switches it back on and just says his demands again. Yes. Is he somebody's nan? <laughs> he was eventually. Like, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, he he okay. he's he's around for a long time. Like he is the leader. How long was he the leader of his party? This this is insane. This is one of these things you do not get in like the UK. Are people who lead their party from yeah he was the leader of the party from 1938 to 1972. He was around for a long time. He was prime minister. The he became prime minister the year my parents were born. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, was, that is some career. Yeah, and bear in mind he kept losing elections, but kept getting to be the leader of the party. He's <laughs> turning his hearing aid off whenever they're like, "You should resign." Yeah, yeah. like that's it. The Neil Kinnock of his day. <laughs> well, no, actually, no, not the Neil Kinnock of his day, because he did win an election. Oh, well. He won an election and got to be Prime Minister. Did he ever fall over at the beach? There is a picture of him at a sort of swimming thing, where it, like, it's the politicians with drip account, where he's like jumping <laughs> into the water, and he's like, he must be very old at this point, but he's in like one of them like, old-style swimming suits, <laughs> just jumping nice. into the water. It's so good. It looks like an album cover. It's amazing. It does. It's so good. It's, just, it's amazing. But yeah, he's sent, and he does this like really stubborn negotiating tactic. His, his main contention is, we deserve national sovereignty and true independence. We don't want like Brits interfering in our affairs. We don't want fucking Americans interfering in our affairs. You know, we want the debt to be, the Ottoman debt to be abolished. That was the real main sticking point from the bit of negotiation mm. he was doing, was that he didn't want the debt to exist anymore. Whereas everyone else was like, we can't just write off your debt because you beat us in a war. That's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> so were the, were the Soviets present at this conference, yeah? Uh, I don't think they were, actually. Actually, the, hmm. no, the Soviets weren't. Japan were. Oh, okay. I suppose they were an entente power at that point, weren't they? Yeah. Actually, yeah, they okay. So the so okay, I should correct myself. The Soviets were invited, but only to talk about the there. So there are basically three main negotiating bits here. There's the sort of what is national sovereignty for Turkey question, and where does national sovereignty apply or not apply? So the borders and like what exactly are Turkey's obligations to everyone as a successor state of the Ottoman Empire? Then there's like the really cursed bit, which we were about to come to, which is the should Turkey respect minorities or not negotiation? Oh, no. Yeah. Mm. And which minorities should Turkey respect or not respect? Uh-oh. Yeah. And then there was, like, the final bit, which is the bit that caused that crisis, which is the straits. Like, what the fuck do we do about the straits? And the Soviets only really came to talk about the straits. Because that <sighs> was the only bit that was relevant to them. Because the Soviets were like, actually... No one but Turkey should be allowed to use the straits for military purposes because otherwise allies will send ships to attack us. You know? Mm. Yeah. The straits are one minority the Turkish should not respect. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there's, if there's one thing I know, it's that the straits in Turkey have had it too good. Yeah. For <laughs> too damn long. But yeah, the Soviets came in, made a bunch of demands, and no one really listened to them, so... You know, rip the Soviets in that case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically, the national sovereignty question, it's kind of easily resolved because everyone's like, well, you've effectively taken the land you want to control and we can't take it back. And no one yeah. wants to take it back from you. So, like, uh, you know. This is what, like, modern political commentators call the facts on the ground. Just trying yeah. to sound very, very smart about things. Yeah, the facts on the ground were no one, basically no one was going to make Turkey give up any of its gains from this. Yeah. And obviously, um, 
there's the muscle issue. And so they basically decided, you know what, we're not going to talk about it for now because it's obvious that like muzzle should belong to Turkey or not belong to Turkey. And Turkey kind of, the Turkish nationals at the time made this really quite bold play when you consider Turkey's history, well, future history at this point, about Kurdish people, where they're like, Kurds and Turks, they're the same, we're racially united. Therefore, we should have all of the Kurdish majority areas. Oh. Which, mm. uh... That, that worked out well in the long run. Yeah, mm. you know. So were they including in this the, the Kurdish majority areas in Iran and Iraq and whatnot, or was that no? Just it was that? just it was just Iraq because they had a they had a very particular thing about the Mosul vilayet, Elayet, I don't know which particular division of thing it right. was, but it was considered like an essential part of the nation because we yeah, talked yeah. about that last time with the Misaka Mali, the um the uh, national pact. Oh yeah, yeah. Where they and there were like bits of Syria and stuff where they kind of claimed that, but. It was it was this whole thing where the Brits, basically the Brits were like, uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna take it to like a third party, and you know, to, they took it to the League of Nations, and the League of Nations basically went, neither the Brits nor Turkey should really get control of the area. So what Britain and Turkey did was they just agreed the line and split it before that could be enforced. <laughs> Brilliant. They were like, uh, okay, so here's the deal: we're gonna draw this line and just sort of move on, and. Basically, Turkey conceded quite a lot on that, which was basically the concession was so that Turkey could join the League of Nations, which was kind of a big deal at the time. I guess it didn't really work out well in the long run. But, you know, basically, they wanted to politically isolate the Soviet Union by having Turkey in and the Soviet Union's out. Uh Yeah, which, yeah, it's it didn't work because Turkey still had quite a good relationship with the Soviet Union. Like up until 1938, when they signed that a treaty we will talk about, a treaty of friendship with Germany. Oh no! Yeah, I think it was 38 or 39. It might be 39 after Barbarossa. Yeah, it must have been after Barbarossa, which is great. You know, I'd, yeah. Uh, mm. Don't be yeah. don't be stupid. <laughs> be a smarty, etc. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was not great. Um, so Turkey also sends a prime melt known as Riza Nur, who is basically in charge of the what minority should we respect campaign oh, and oh. negotiation. Oh, good. He, yeah, good, yeah. He, basically, his whole politics is, I would like to have a constitutional monarchy. And he's such a melt that he was one of the people who sort of suggested, you know, we could become a, a mandate of America. What? Yeah, he in the it, basically right after World War One. This is not during the national during the actual active part of the national struggle. But he's like, uh, well, you know, it, if we don't want the Brits, I'm sure the Americans are better. Oh my god, a sort of pro proto NATO shell. Yeah, <clears throat> and he, you know, and he's a founding member of the Grand National Assembly, and he was uh, the education minister, then the health minister. And then, you know, he actually does negotiate these other treaties. So he negotiates the Treaty of Moscow, which is um, the deal that was signed between Lenin's Russian SFSR and the National Assembly. And I don't believe it was ever ratified. Um, or no, wait, I think it, no, I think the, it was ratified because it was the treaty where they actually recognized each other as countries. Right. Because the first country to recognize the Soviet Union was the Turkish nationalists and the first country to recognize the Turkish nationalists was the Soviet Union. I don't think it might have been Azerbaijan. 
actually. But then Turkey kind of betrayed Azerbaijan in that one a little bit. Oh boy! Yeah, I didn't realize that that Turkey was the first were the first to, to recognize the Soviet Union. But I suppose it makes sense. Yeah, like yeah. of I think they were the first. I think it was of the countries that still existed after. Um, yeah. After that, you know, after all of the Russian civil wars and SFSRs and stuff had been settled and consolidated, they were the only ones that still existed as an actual sovereign state at that point. And um, in fact, this was such a, this treaty is such a big deal that um, members of the Duma in Russia, after Turkey shot down a Russian plane in Syria, suggested annulling the treaty and not recognizing Turkey as the Turkish nationalists as a government oh, retroactively, boy. which, and yeah, which obviously like, they were obviously like the government in Russia were like, are you fucking insane? Why are we doing this weird shit? Like <laughs> what a weird fucking thing to do. We're not doing that. <laughs> what a we- weird thing to get mad at. But yeah, this guy is like the prime melt. His entire, like his entire like information about him is basically opinions about minorities that he has. Oh, and no. who's Turkish and who's not Turkish. Yeah. Oh, it's like, like the sorting hat from Harry Potter for, for nationalities. <laughs> sounds sounds like a real winner. Yeah, he's like, oh, you know, the uh, the Turkic speaking people in Iran, those are Turks, but Kurdish people, not Turks, shouldn't be included in a national project. Did he did he have like an amateur cartography habit? Well, <laughs> you'd think so. He he also beefed with Yugoslavia. <laughs> Which I have to say is an impressive thing. He's a, he's an early progenitor of Balkan discourse because he beefed with Yugoslavia, and he also specifically said this is one of the like most specific forms of racism I've ever heard. Where he's like Albanians are specifically predisposed to being bandits. Ah, okay, yeah. So like he has a whole fucking thing about this. Like, but uh, are they Turks though? That's the important. No, thing. is. Is is that why he was beefing with Yugoslavia? Because they thought that Albanians were Turks. Yeah, maybe because he also fought Circassians, who people from who listened to the first episode will note were kind of important to the national struggle. Like hmm. they were pretty important. Yeah, Circassians not part of the national project of Turkey. This uh, uh, Georgian instead, were they? This lad sounds like he's measured a few skulls in his time. Yeah, <laughs> like. He falls out of favor quite quickly because obviously they, you know, we'll get to it. That like the initial Turkish nationalism sort of project was, you know, it gave it sort of tried to pitch towards sort of you know civic nationalism. We don't see race, you know, that kind of thing, you know, or at least understood racism as a thing white people do to black people. I guess incredible. And like he he basically fell out with Ataturk because. We'll get to it, but there was an assassination attempt, and the att- alleged assassins were executed. Uh, oh, and right. he was like, "I may have been politically opposed to them, but you shouldn't execute them." And I'm like, they did try to assassinate the leader of the country in a country where, you know, the death penalty is still around for treason. So, yeah, yeah. Not to mention there's sort of a war on and all that, you know. Yeah. Well, 1926, there wasn't a war at that point, but yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, like I just looked up the guy's Wikipedia page and immediately Nur also had negative views of Circassians in Turkey and along with Albanians viewed them as a threat to the Turkish state due to developing rival nationalisms. A thing that hasn't happened, by the way, you yeah. know, in any meaningful political way. Like, Al- incidentally, the Albanian nationalism happened in Albania, not in <laughs> Turkey. Like, I don't know where he thinks Albania is. It's within the borders of Greater Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, that's as, as his maps would show you. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, like Circassians, as far as I understood, like like something nowadays, something like half of all of the Circassians in the world live in Turkey. Never been like a massive fucking issue, to my knowledge. You know. Yeah, you you would think you would have heard about it if it was. <laughs> you would have had a Kurdish-style, you know, separatist movement at that point. You know, th- that being said, and this is one of these things we'll get to in the forties. There were like massive repression campaigns against identities. So, you know, that obviously covered Circassians as well. But Circassians, broadly speaking, appear to have been invested in the Turkish nationalist project. (coughs) Yeah. And have been important to it, I would suggest, given some of the things we talked about last time. But yeah, Turkey also sent its final negotiator, who was the chief rabbi of the Ottoman Empire. Ah. Hayim Nahum. Who... Yeah, interesting character. He's he's one of these characters that I wish there was more English language information about because he specifically favored an Ottoman identity. Like he was one of these people who advocated for Ottomanism. Oh, is is that because you have a preference for a sort of multinational state, so almost. Yeah, because well you got to remember he's the chief rabbi for the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And there are a lot of different types and you know types of jewish people even in the ottoman empire right because it includes what's now israel palestine and it includes a significant jewish population in like istanbul izmir all of these places so his community that he was the chief rabbi of was incredibly diverse in a diverse empire yeah yeah so he's kind of like well you know should we not in fact try to develop this identity where we all live together. We get to express our cultural differences, but we all get to exist within this sort of society that is diverse without murdering each other senselessly. Which, Mm. not bad. You know. Better than than a lot of suggestions. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like, interesting character. Wish there was sort of more about him in English language stuff. So that I wasn't, like, unreliably translating it from Turkish in that way that I do. (laughs) Basically, in the actual negotiations, the Brits basically get incredibly mad about everything because they're getting nothing. Like, they're getting nothing from it. And even Mussolini and the French Prime Minister of the time are like, just get over it. Like, you lost <laughs> you lost the fucking war. Like, please, we don't want to go to war again because we also lost. Well, Mussolini, Italy kind of were like, we didn't lose, we just left. <laughs> yeah. They're like, we never lost. We've never lost a war ever. In fact, we're going to go to Ethiopia in a few years and show you how good we are at winning wars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Famously. Yeah, well, to be fair, the the Italian bungled Italian invasion of Ethiopia was before this, but, you know. True, yeah. Yeah. It's still an embarrassment. I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think that was part of the embarrassment that allowed fascism to take hold in Italy, to be fair. Mm, yeah. So... But the main sticking point is this Ottoman debt. And basically, Turkey gets a really fucking good deal out of this. Because Turkey... So, like, the suggestion, the compromise they come to is, well, technically, aren't all of these mandates and, you know, all of these mandates that you're forming in the Middle East, aren't they technically successor states of the Ottoman Empire? And isn't Iraq technically a mandate of the Ottoman Empire? And everyone's like, well, yeah, they're all, like, you know, know, successor states of the Ottoman Empire. Like, well, why don't we just divide the debt between the successor states? Oof. You know, why, <laughs> and why don't we divide it by, get this, population, said the country that lost most of its population due to war. Oh. 
Oh, yeah. Wow. One... Taki got a fucking great deal out of this. One weird trick. Yeah. <laughs> Because obviously, like, the bulk of the Ottoman army, like, yeah, there were people from Yemen, and in fact, Yemen was also one of these places that's a successor state, technically. Mm. Like, Yemen and, you know, Jordan and Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and all these other places. Although Lebanon and Syria were one, were one mandate together. They're like, well, why don't we divide it, you know, proportionately between the successor states? So Turkey got a fucking amazing deal out of this. I'm just going to ask, like, uh, like these successor states, you know, when they became independent from their League of Nations mandates, were they still saddled with Ottoman debt to pay off? Uh, I think some cancelled their debts because you remember they had because they were League of Nations mandates. Mm. The liabilities fell on the mandate governments. Oh shit! So technically, what Turkey did was palm its debt off onto the French and Brits. <laughs> Except in Iraq, because Iraq is different because it wasn't quite a League of Nations mandate. Mm. It had a degree of political independence that was not the same as, like, you know, Syria, France's Syria mandate or Transjordan or the Ardennes Protectorate, I guess it was called, or something like that. They didn't quite have the same thing. And, and obviously, that meant Saudi Arabia technically had a proportion of the Ottoman debt. Because the Vilayet of Hejaz was part of the Ottoman Empire, technically. Ah. Before it united with uh, Nejid and formed Saudi Arabia. So Iraq might have had some of the Ottoman debts. Gotcha. But I think, I think the other mandate governments were like, well, we can't be in debt to ourselves. Because that doesn't make any fucking sense. So we're just going to cancel the debts. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Lo- love, love to do international finance. Yeah. And obviously, Turkey makes a big deal about paying off the Ottoman debt and stuff like that, because they're like, yeah, look at us, we're a grown-up country, we pay our debts. And I'm like, that's so fucking sad, (laughs) paying off an imperialist debt and being proud of it. What a fucking loser attitude. Anyway. (laughs) And obviously, like, Mosul and stuff like that is solved. And then there's the minorities issues. And so we've, we've decided at this point which minorities are human and which aren't. Oh, no. So, the minorities that Turkey legally because of the Treaty of Lausanne, has to respect, and still technically has to respect, Greek Orthodox Christians, uh-huh. Armenian Orthodox Christians, uh-huh. and Jewish people. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are the only, like, legally recognized religious minorities. Not a lot of Greek Orthodox Christians left uh, by this point, was there? Well, no, probably not. In fact, mm. if, there were, if there were many left, they took care of that. Um, but we'll get to how they took care of that in a little bit. Mm. So, and also there's the straight stuff. So basically the Soviet demand that like only Turkey ever gets to use the straights was kind of laughed out of the room because it's like, come on now, let's be real. (laughs) Like, (laughs) let's be real about this. Everyone's going to use the straights. We just need to limit everyone using it all the time. So they come up with the, um, they basically come up with this idea that Turkey has to keep them demilitarized. And, you know, you have to allow passage for, you know, basically everyone at the time. And that is revisited, obviously, around 1936, where we get a new decision on that, because everyone's like, we're heading towards war. Mm. And perhaps then having everyone freely move shit around is not a good idea. But the funny thing about that is it was probably pushed by the Brits, and it fucked the Brits, basically. So, <laughs> yet another case of, ter- of, the, of the Straits fucking Britain. Really badly. Was uh, was that Churchill's doing again? Or? 
36, no. I think that was whoever the dipshit was in charge then. It actually might have been Churchill. Fuck, he might have been foreign secretary. Oh, Shit, boy. he hasn't done it again, has he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. We might have to check. Because if he's done it again, I'm going to fucking lose my mind. Oh, man. Imagine just like, ah, I know who's the perfect man to negotiate with Turkey on this issue. <laughs> it's Winston Churchill to talk about the straits. He's an expert on them after all. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't think it was him. I think I have to look that up. When we get to the 30s, we'll, we'll, I'll look it up properly. But it's funny to imagine they sent Winston Churchill again for round three with Ismet Inonu, <laughs> who was the Prime Minister at the time. Oh. As I say, his actual nemesis. Yeah, everyone thinks Ataturk's his nemesis, but really. Like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so this treaty, like, Turkey gets kind of a good deal out of this. In all told, given its relatively weak negotiating position, mostly because everyone else is fucking sick of this shit. <laughs> and, there, and there are some weird, like, weird territorial stuff. So it turned out at this point, Turkey still technically owned an island in the, like, in the estuary of the Danube. Oh. Like, in Romania, they still owned an island, and Romania were invited to it because they were a Black Sea country, and so the straits were relevant to them. And they're like, can we, like, sort this out because no one li- no one really gives a shit about this island do they <laughs> like and i think the island is called adakale which in turkish just means island fortress or island castle yeah i think it's in the danube let me just make sure that it's yeah it's a small island in the danube it's been submerged now uh sadly but it's oh. um yeah you can see these lovely pictures of it if you look it up it's a it's this lovely little island and it had some it had some you know nice little like had a bazaar and stuff like that. It was a lovely place. There are even some like quite quite famous people who come out of there. Basically, oh, yeah. it was yeah. It's it's a lovely. It looks lovely, right? <laughs> like if you look at the pictures of it. But you know, even King Carol of Romania visits it, and Suleiman Demirel visits it, and it's like it's kind of it's a historically important place. It's sort of a an outpost of Turkish culture that kind of remained in Romania for a long time. And now it's gone. But they were like, obviously, obviously, you're not like gonna planning on keeping this are you and they're like no we're not like we can just we can just sort of we can just let it go it's no one cares like it was one of these things that were just sort of ignored because it was just kind of like oh who cares it's just an island in the danube what's the big deal yeah there's some people living on it but nah you know what i mean kind of like in always sunny when dennis is like i've got her in a courtroom can we just sort this out real quick (laughs) (laughs) turkey refusing to accept the divorce from romania with any grace (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so this treat so there's lots of like small weird territorial stuff like that that gets sorted out that everyone's kind of like yeah it's kind of obvious when you think about it that we should probably not be and obviously this is where something that will probably come up when we come to like the 2010s the tomb of Suleiman Shah, who is the grandfather of the founder of the Ottoman dynasty, his tomb is like specifically made into Turkish territory. It's a sort of Turkish enclave in Syria, and it becomes this massive sticking point later on because ISIS take it over. Oh no. Yeah, and that's obviously like a big problem because, ev- well, ISIS almost take it over. ISIS took over like a Turkish consulate and it became like a national crisis. Jesus. Yeah, because. Apparently, someone had ordered the Turkish embassy to take down the flag and surrender to ISIS, and that obviously prompted like huge like levels of rage. Like, yeah, well, I mean, you, you do not got to hand it to them. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> Turkish map YouTube came out in force for that one. 
Oh fuck yeah. <laughs> Hoisting the wrong kind of black flag over a conquered embassy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so the treaty's signed, you know, it's all ratified. Uh, it's signed on the 24th of July, 1923. And the Republic, because remember, they'd abolished the monarchy uh, in 1922. And they gave the last emperor, you know, a suitcase full of cash and said, told him, go fuck off to Malta then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is a good deal, given some of the stuff that's been going on at this point. Yeah, it got up easy, though. Could, could have met the fate of the Romanovs if he, if he hadn't been more careful. So they, so they send them off, and the monarchy's abolished. But, get this, the calif- caliphate still exists, which means that there is an alternative government that is able to issue legal decrees. <laughs> oh, no. As a republic is formed. So that's going to be pretty much a problem straight away, I would imagine. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like dual power. <laughs> yeah, it's this is sort of the thing where they were like, oh, you know, it can be like the Pope in Italy. Where no one listens to them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, no. How many divisions does the Caliph have? Yeah. Well, he we don't have any, but, like, he has, you know, what we would call cultural capital, you know? Hmm, soft power. Yeah. And so you asked about, like, there are not many Greek Orthodox left in Turkey. That's because a Swedish man appears with an elegant solution to this constant warring. Sorry, he's not Swedish, he's Norwegian, excuse me. I, I just I just dunked on the Swedish for no reason there. What, what if a Swedish man was Norwegian? That's right. Um, what's his name? Fritjof Nansen. So he is the first High Commissioner for Refugees appointed by the League of Nations. Uh... And he, he comes up with this brilliant idea. He's like, oh, well, I mean, if, if it's the, the fact that there are Greek people living in Anatolia and Turkish people living in Greece that's the problem, why don't we simply swap them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we simply agree to swap these populations and do a population exchange? Because, you know, deliberately moving one group on the basis of religion or ethnicity into another region in order to change the ethnic makeup of a place, that's not something. No. We've never heard no. of that. No. Oh, you know? No. And this is, and I mentioned, I think it might be off recording that I'm going to describe the one statue I think should be defended. I, this is the one statue I think the statue defenders should defend. So in Turkey, in every town, every town, every, well, not village, not necessarily village, but in every town of a certain size and above, you'll have a statue in the main square of Ataturk or someone like that, usually Ataturk, because, you know, it's the nationalist project. You, how are you going to remember history if there's not a statue, right? Exactly. Mm, yeah. yeah. I was traveling through Turkey with my family because we were driving to this kind of resort town on the southwestern coast, but my family had taken to taking the ferry from Istanbul to Bursa and then driving around the coast, which I have to say I fucking hated. Turkey is a fucking massive country. Mm. Like, deceptively large, with terrible infrastructure in some places. And anyway, we're in this sort of small town. There's a statue there in the main square, and it's not about to because it's kind of a small town, but it's of, like, some Ottoman functionary... Who had a funny nickname, so my mum took a picture of me next to it and was like, That's that yeah, that's you. You're the jackass now. Like, great. <laughs> anyway, I we we walk along the coast and there's a statue there, and this is on the west coast of Turkey, of a family. They're clearly refugees from the population exchange. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it, one of the weirdest statues I'd like not weird in a bad way, it was just weird to see it because this particular period of time in Turkey is like all about triumphalism, all about how much we owned the fucking West with facts and logic, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you just see this one statue 
of it was I remember it really clearly. It was husband, wife, two kids. You know, the kids are just sort of, you know, fighting with each other, whatever. Husband's got his um arm around the wife, wife's weeping, you know, carrying suitcases. There's no there was no like indication on the statue of whether these people were Greek or Turkish or Christian or Muslim or whatever, you know, because, you know, uh, I remember the woman had a headscarf. Everyone wore a headscarf then, you know, like, mm, yeah, that's just like, even Orthodox Christians also would wear headscarves, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? So especially if they were traveling in the heat in Turkey. And it was just one of these things that like really stuck out to me where I was like, shit, like this is, I, I asked my dad about it. I was like, dad, what the fuck? Have you ever seen a statue like this? Like, not common, but like, this is the actual history of these places. Like, towns like yeah. this on the western coast of Turkey, where you can see the Greek islands from, you know, the coast. Like, this is the history, because all of these people, you know, would have had interactions with each other, lives with each other. You know, they knew each other across all these places, because they, they, who gives a shit, right? Yeah. You know, you know, you know who your neighbor is. It's impossible to kind of be that wound up at your neighbor, even if they're a bit of a dick, you know? Yeah. And, you know, this is the actual history of these places. It's it's th this horrible thing happened where I think let me try and get the number really quick. It was let me just see if I can find the number of people because we talked about the uh, Izmir fire where it was like eight hundred thousand refugees, and so this must have been upwards of a million, two million. Let me see here. It was it involved at least one point six million. Jesus. Yeah, so it was something like 1.2 million from Turkey who are uh, Greek Orthodox. They didn't discriminate based on like um, ethnicity or language spoken, just on religion, because right. they seem to perceive that as the main problem. And about 400,000 from Greece to Turkey, and they were forcibly they they were not asked nicely. Would yeah. you like to go to Greece or Turkey? They were forced out on both yeah. sides. You know, Jesus. Yeah. Like, it was a compulsory... They didn't ask the people. The people, I, you know, judging from the fact that that statue, I presume, is still there, my guess is the people there still have some sort of negative feeling towards it. You yeah. know? Yeah, it must have torn communities apart, man. Definitely. Yeah. It is one of these horrible things where a lot of You know, because the point of it was it, it sort of built in this mood at the time that nation states had to be pure in some way for the nation to be valid yeah. and it's stuff like this so as much as like the turkish nationalists love to be like we're a civic nationalist project we don't care about you know you know you could be kurdish greek armenian whatever turkish yeah you know but you are turkish if you're born within the territory of this country but like how can that be true if these people who were born within the territory of your country are forced to leave so that your country can exist normally, or as you, exist as you want it to exist. Yeah, it's just one of these things I have to get off my chest because it, it's that statue is one of those things I want to talk about. I could talk about it all day, yeah. but I don't think we can. But it's just it just struck me in a country that's so triumphalist about this time period that that statue exists. I'm like, that's the fucking kind of statue that actually teaches history because yeah. it doesn't conform to the you know mainstream narrative. It's not. It's not some Confederate dickhead on a horse. No. Yeah. It's. It's a. It's a. It's of the people who had their lives upended by it. Because there's a lot of, you know, my cousin's dad's family are from Crete originally. They're not from Turkey. They're not, you know, from mainland Turkey. They're from Crete. They're Cretan. You know, his surname is like from a dialect of Cretan Turkish. 
like no- nothing to do with like mainland Anatolian Turkish or anything like that. Like yeah. his name is strange to me. Like his name is a strange name, and it comes from the fact that Turkish unit in Crete were kicked out by this exchange. Well, they were kicked out by a lot of different things. Actually, we'll come to Cyprus eventually, obviously. But like, if you were going to pick an island in the Mediterranean in like 1860, where the island would be split in two between Greeks and Turks, you would probably have picked Crete and not Cyprus. Because it was like, it was something close to 50-50 at one point. Yeah. I assume this, uh, this fucking like Nansen guy, was that his name? Yeah. Yeah, I assume when if he came up with such an incredibly like fucking shit policy that like, you know, fucking dispossessed so many people. I assume they made him like a fucking king or something. Uh, <laughs> he won a Nobel Peace Prize. Fuck me. Of course. Not yes. not for not for not for this though. He oh. won it in nineteen twenty two. Well that's that's I mean that's slightly better than <laughs> the, the Kissinger of his day. Wonderful. Yeah, he, he won a Nobel Peace Prize in nineteen twenty two for his leading role in the repatriation of prisoners of war and international relief work and as League of Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. A job where you didn't expect him to create refugees. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you know what I mean? He's just ensuring his own job security at that point, though, isn't he? (laughs) Yeah. Jesus Christ. In the pocket of big refugee. He (laughs) misunderstood his job description. He thought he was the Minister for Creating Refugees. It's the uh, it's the Lionel Hutz bit. No more refugees. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that is that's the negotiation process for the uh, for the formate. We finally got to it. Turkey exists now. Yeah, that's it. We got there. Two episodes, and Turkey finally exists. Nothing but nothing but peace and prosperity from here on, lads. So you might say nothing but peace at home. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, I said the line. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) And peace in the world as well. Yeah, peace in the world. I feel like Turkey's been doing a great job for that. You know, if there's one thing we're swimming in at the moment, both at home and in the world, it's peace. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But I I guess we'll come to that when we come to it, because... If events have been happening since the podcast has happened, and so we'll have to eventually catch up with the present day, which means I'm going to have to go into Erdogan's whole I'm a man making peace act. <laughs> great. Yes. Excited for that. But that's your episode, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the second episode, the difficult second episode. Yep. Oh, good God, was it difficult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was difficult to set a time for this, so... You know that you know it wasn't the worst. We ought we ought all to <laughs> haunted Scottish internet. Yeah, so we're off to record the second bonus episode, which will be coming out a week after this. Yeah, about um, whether we can ask people questions. Oh, I'm so psyched for yeah. this. Yeah, it's going to be good. So, if you want access to the first bonus episode, which was about the time Erdogan tried to sue someone for comparing him to Gollum, just go on our Patreon. I mean, that's and, an outrageous claim to make, you know what I mean? After like, the, the, the man who's just making peace. Yeah, he's making peace like Gollum. Yeah. He's biting off fingers and falling into lava. Yeah, he's making peace by being a weird goblin guy that eats raw fish. That's right. <laughs> anyway, I hope he sues us for that. <laughs> oh, yes. But we've established that Gollum... Well, I won't spoil it, but yeah. you, can, you can find out how, whether what the Turkish courts... 
I mean, I'm, how the I'm, Turkish courts altered canon in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I'm happy. If, I'm happy if he sues us for that. I've got too much like shit in my house. He's welcomed the half of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Giving him the shit in the garden. Yeah. Like, he has to put it in his presidential palace. Anyway, we're we're gonna sign off. Take it easy, everyone. Yeah. Bye. See ya. Bye. Şimdiye kadar medeni başarıya tarafından tamamıyla anlaşılmamış bulunuyorsa Türk milleti çalışkandır, Türk milleti çekildir. Namuslu, Türk milleti çekildir.